It's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear you won't admit no, that the, the Russians have engaged in cyber attacks against the United States of America, that you encouraged espionage against our people, that you are willing to spout the Putin line, sign up for his wish list, break up NATO, do whatever he wants to do, and that you continue to get help from him because he has a very clear favorite in this race. We can't say we weren't warned. Welcome to Bots and Bouts from Yahoo News. I'm Grant Burningham. That was Hillary Clinton during one of her debates with Donald Trump. We still don't know exactly what Trump knew about Russian efforts to get him elected, which came in the form of hacked emails and online messaging. But during the election, Hillary Clinton, the candidate, and her staff were desperately trying to raise the alarm and get the press to report that Russia was engaged in a large, coordinated effort to elect Trump. Much of what we've learned from intelligence and from the Mueller indictments has backed up some of that narrative. Today I'm talking to someone at the center of Clinton's campaign as it was coming under assault. Jake Sullivan was a senior policy advisor to Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential election campaign. He was also a senior advisor to the U.S. government for the Iran nuclear negotiations and a visiting professor at Yale Law School. Sullivan tried to get the press to cover the story at large. And although tidbits made it out into the press, it wasn't until months after the election that the scope of Russia's efforts came into view. I'm very excited to have him on the show today. Jake Sullivan, thanks so much for joining me on Bots and Ballots. Thanks for having me. So my show focuses on technology and the election, and a lot of that has been focused on Russian interference in 2016. You kind of had a front row seat. Um, I'm wondering, as a member of Clinton's campaign, when you first got hints that something was going wrong in terms of uh, Russian interference. Well, sometime in the in the late spring of 2016, I started coming to understand that there may have been hacks uh, at the DNC and attempted hacks as well at the Clinton campaign, which we thought were emanating from Russia, but weren't totally sure. And at the time, that didn't seem so unusual because in 2012 and in other elections, uh, foreign intelligence services had either hacked or attempted to hack other presidential campaigns to gather information, to learn more about who the key players were. It really wasn't until the documents started coming out right around the Democratic National Convention in July that we realized there was a different game going on. There was something else afoot. So talk about that change in tactics. I know that Obama's campaign was successfully hacked by the Russians, as was McCain, but they previously would sit on the documents or use them for internal intelligence purposes, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can understand why a foreign intelligence apparatus would think uh, learning things about the internal workings of a campaign would be to their advantage. Uh, but that is a far cry. That kind of intelligence gathering exercise is in an entirely separate category from uh, the effort to weaponize the information. That's something we hadn't seen before at this magnitude or in this way. And I have to say, we weren't quite ready for it. It came as a real surprise to us. But the minute those documents started falling, it was like a thunderbolt because we didn't pause to think, oh, why might that have happened? We realized straight away, okay, you know, the Russians are coming at us. We're living in a different reality. At that time, did it surprise you that it was Russia coming after you? I found it a little surprising that a country would be so brazen 
um, you know, attempt to use cutouts, but in a pretty weak way so that it became obvious fairly rapidly after the convention that this was the Russians. So I was a little surprised they would be that brazen in interfering in the U.S. election. But among the candidate countries who would do such a thing, Russia was number one on the list. For a number of reasons. First, they had a history of interference in elections across Europe. Second, they had a particular beef with Hillary Clinton. Uh, Vladimir Putin himself had a beef with her because he felt wrongly, but felt quite passionately that she played some hand in the protests against him a few years earlier. And then third, they loved Donald Trump. And Donald Trump had for months before those hacked documents were leaked out, had been basically singing off of Vladimir Putin's hymn sheet. So once it happened, I was not a bit surprised that it was Russia. So we now know that this was a multi-prong attack. There was the hacks, which released these emails. There was attempts to amplify that and other messages on online platforms. I'm wondering what the campaign realized as the the full depth of this attack was sinking in and that this even went beyond the hacks? You know, it's a great question. The two things oftentimes get conflated or elided, the hacking and weaponization of information through leaks and then the broader information warfare campaign being perpetrated through social media. And they are related, but they were distinct prongs, as you put it, of the Russian operation. We obviously knew the first one had hit us when the documents started falling out into the public in July. As for the second prong, the social media prong, we didn't come to understand this was even going on until very late in the day. And it wasn't until the closing days of the election that we started to realize that maybe something was happening. And it really wasn't until well after the election that we came to understand the full scope and scale of the Russian effort and how the social media aspect of it was amplifying and driving the uh, hacked and leaked documents aspect of it, that this was an integrated effort um, that had been quite well thought through. Do you have any regrets about how the campaign responded to that? Is there anything you could have done which could have blunted this? In one sense, yes, of course I have regrets because we didn't succeed in getting the media's attention, the public's attention, or really anyone else's attention as squarely focused on the fact that there was an assault on our democracy by a hostile foreign power as we should have. We were trying everything we could think of uh, through the summer and fall um, as far as the WikiLeaks effort was, was concerned, including hosting conference calls with Russia and cyber experts, including calling around to every journalist who knew something about this information space we could to say, you guys have got to dig into this and you have to establish this, and including having the candidate herself stand on the debate stage and describe how this was a Russian-organized and directed effort to help one campaign and hurt another and fundamentally attack American democracy. And none of that seemed to work. So do I have regrets about that? Yes. I, obviously, we should have come up with a different strategy. Sitting here today, though, I don't know exactly what that would have been. I mean, I don't have a better answer now than I did then about how you could actually get the conventional wisdom on this issue to solidify before November 8th 
uh, around a view that we were actually, in fact, under attack. So, Jake, what what's wrong with us? Why didn't we in the media run with that story? I think there's a few things. One was when the leaks first started, the campaign communications director, Jennifer Palmieri, and myself went to each of the networks, and we met with the anchors and the executive producers and the news directors of each of them. We had these sort of big summit sit-downs with ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, CNN. And as I made the presentation about what we thought was going on from the Russians and also pointed out to them that the Russians were doing this in part, we believed, because they liked what they were hearing from Donald Trump, even I felt slightly uncomfortable. Maybe I'm maybe I'm joined the tinfoil hat set. You know, there was a a sense that this was somehow a far-fetched conspiracy when we first started describing it. And and you could see the skepticism on the faces and hear it in the voices of those various news organizations. And then the second thing is that for a variety of reasons, the Obama administration had to take a very cautious approach to describing its own findings on this. So it actually wasn't until October that the Obama administration said uh, that they were attributing the DNC hack and leak to the Russians. And even then, they did it by paper, uh, fairly low-key. The president himself never really got engaged on the issue publicly. And I understand why, because of the the political nature of it. But when you didn't have the administration going out there sounding a three-alarm fire, and it was only the campaign doing so, I think it felt to a lot of people in the press and the public like maybe this was just a political thing the Clinton campaign was ginning up, and it was not actually the reality. Obama's response seemed kind of piecemeal and slow. I'm wondering if you think he did enough to fight back. Well, I think there's a couple of factors that go into how to assess that question. The first is, what exactly did they know? You know, you asked me earlier, um, when did you realize what was going on with the social media and information warfare side of this? And I told you it was in the very late hours of the campaign and, and not even in full until well after the campaign. I don't know the answer to when the Obama administration actually knew about all of that, but my guess is that the answer is probably similar that they were not fully cited on the fact that there was this kind of whole integrated effort with bots and trolls and driving messages and impersonating Americans and trying to generate conflict online and uh, trying to push anti-Hillary messages that had been surfaced up through WikiLeaks. My guess is that they didn't have a full sense of the scope of this until they really started digging into it in November, December, and January when they released this um, intelligence community assessment. So I think you have to start there, and I don't think enough people focus on that aspect. But what they were aware of, what they were fully aware of, was that the Russians were involved in uh, hacking and and then leaking these documents. And there... I sympathize with the administration that they didn't kind of go out as the tip of the spear uh, publicly because they were worried that it would end up looking like they were trying to put a thumb on the scale for Hillary Clinton. You had a Democratic president. So Obama's solution to this was to try to get the Republicans in Congress to join in a bipartisan statement. And Mitch McConnell famously said, I won't do that, and I'm going to cry politics, and you know, you can't go out and say anything about this. I think that really paralyzed the president 
understandably. So it's hard for me to criticize. I do think that whatever your conclusion is on whether they should have done more or shouldn't have done more, the fact that they didn't play a larger public role in this made it very difficult for us at the campaign to convince anyone of what we were seeing because it just sounded so political. I mean, theoretically, wasn't this an attack on the United States and couldn't it have even activated a NATO response? I think certainly. In fact, I went out to the press in late July, in the early days um, following the, the first leaked material and said, this is not a political issue. This is a national security issue. This is an attack on the United States. And then to your question, I think absolutely the United States was under assault by a hostile foreign power, and we easily could have gone to NATO and said, we would like to activate a common response to push back on this. Uh, and I believe that going forward, one of the key agenda items for the United States in terms of modernizing NATO is thinking about how to organize the collective cyber capabilities of the NATO alliance partners so that we can resist and respond to this kind of Russian aggression, whether it happens again in the United States, whether it happens in, an, in other European countries. And we can expect that both of those things will happen, and we should be collectively as an alliance organized to respond to it. So I can say as someone who covers this space that 2018 already looks a lot like 2016. We don't have a presidential election, but all those same tactics are at play. And in some ways, it doesn't seem like we've learned very much, although uh, social media companies are making some efforts that they weren't in 2016. And um, you can point to some other changes. What is your wish list for how we could deal with problems like this? Well, I have, you know, I don't, I don't have an absolute set wish list, but there's a few areas that I think we have to have a very hard conversation about. So the first is, how do media companies treat leaked material that has been hacked by a hostile foreign power? In 2016, there was sort of gleeful coverage of the Podesta leaks and the DNC leaks, and it was almost sort of set aside as irrelevant, the source of them or the motive behind uh, how they were acquired. And I, I think we, that there has to be a set of norms established around how the press and the media treat that. There will be further hacked and leaked documents, no matter what our defense is over time. And, and I think the press has some role to play in that. Secondly, now having been through it myself as part of this campaign, I have a fresher appreciation for just how important it is for campaigns to take this seriously and really double down on operational security. Third, I do think social media companies have to do more even than they are doing now to use the capacities they have to shine a light on and stop the efforts of the Russians, who will continue evolving their tactics, and social media companies need to try and stay one step ahead of them. And then fourth and finally, I think maybe the most important conversation for us all to have is what exactly is a strategy of imposing costs on Russia so that they actually recalculate the cost-benefit analysis of doing this? Have you been targeted or hacked? I have been targeted by the Russians. Uh, I shared uh, the phishing attacks by the Russians, to my knowledge, 
uh, they were not successful in being able to get in. I obviously recognized and, and didn't respond to the phishing attacks and also, um, you know, have taken other precautions with my email. But I have to proceed, as I think we all do now, on the basis that what we write in our campaign emails or other political emails going forward could potentially be the subject of a hack and leak. Uh, and I think that's just kind of a general domain awareness that everybody's going to have to have going forward. So if we could shift for a minute, I'm wondering if you could put the infamous Trump Tower meeting in context for me. There's been people who say that this is standard operating procedure for campaigns. Is that really something out of the norm for a campaign to do, to meet with a, a foreign power during an election and seek some sort of quid pro quo or seek some information or help? It is the exact opposite of standard operating procedure. I mean, what is amazing to me about the Trump Tower meeting is that if you had told me, as we were starting to worry and wonder about the possibility of collaboration between the Trump campaign and Russia, that there would be an email that said, literally said, uh, we would like to come meet with you as part of the Russian government's efforts to help the Trump campaign. And I believe that I am either directly quoting that or capturing the words almost exactly. That's what it said, as part of the Russian government's effort to help the Trump campaign. If you had told me a month before that email was put out into the public domain that such a thing existed, I would have said, that's crazy. There's no way. That's the smoking gun. It'll never be something quite as clear-cut as that. Yet that comes out, and the response is, oh, that's no big deal. It's, it's nothing. This is what people do. Absolutely not. If I had been approached by the Russians, and they had said to me, we want to help your campaign, and we're prepared to do a bunch of stuff to that end, I would have immediately contacted the FBI because I would have recognized that for what it was a hostile foreign power trying to undermine American democracy and subvert the will of the American people. And so, no, it's not standard operating procedure. Uh, it's utterly unacceptable. Do campaigns look for dirt on each other? Yes, of course they do. Every campaign does that. Do campaigns talk to and engage with uh, foreign governments about policy issues, about you know what might come if they get elected? Of course. Do campaigns talk to foreign governments in a direct and overt way about trying to work together to produce a positive election outcome? I'm not aware of that happening in American politics. And if it has happened before, I would say the same thing about this case. That is completely unacceptable. I believe it is, in fact, illegal. And it is certainly something for which the people doing it should be held accountable. All right. Jake, thanks so much for coming on Bots and Ballots. Thanks for having me. That's it for Bots and Ballots this week. Please subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks this week to my guest, Jake Sullivan, to Ronald Young Jr. for field recording, and to my producer, Leah Hitchens. If there's something you think I missed or if you have an idea of something I should cover, find me on Twitter, GrantDB. I'm Grant Burningham. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>